Well, we might as well uh, get started in uh, this grand, glorious book, grand, glorious chapter of uh, 1 of Ephesians. Verse uh, 3 through 14 is uh, just piling one glory upon another glory upon another glory, and Paul is unfolding blessings here. Uh, we, we see who the great God is in the same time he's showing us the blessings that we have as a result of God's wonderful grace. And I think God has just caused them to abound and abound for us. Uh, and ultimately, it's for uh, God's purpose to glorify himself. Uh, we can think on these great blessings and rejoice in them, and, and well, we should. But then it all ties right back up with it's all about God's glory. And I think as we uh, look at uh, verses 11 through 14, which is dealing with the inheritance, uh, most of 11 we, we covered last week, but the, the first and most important thing is to see that it begins with God, it ends with God. God's ultimate purpose is to glorify Himself. That seems so basic and so simple. But um, if we would only think that way in our own lives and in everything, think uh, God first, not um, ourselves. And and when we do that, we put it in the right perspective. Uh, We were destined and uh, predestined, I guess, and appointed to live for the praise of His glory. And and by the time you get to verse 14, we see that uh, He has guaranteed our inheritance. That's what we talked about last week. It's all to the praise of His glory. The most basic fact I think you can say about the righteousness of God is that He has a commitment to bring glory to Himself, to His own glory. He is so committed to that. He's committed to what He is going to do for us. That is, it is absolutely going to be done. Um, The guarantee is 100% absolute true will happen. Everything He does... He keeps heightening the intensity of it. As you look in Ephesians, it keeps building up and building up. But it's all to the praise of His glory. Look at the end of verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. At the end of verse 14, after He talks about the Holy Spirit sealing us and guaranteeing us, then He says, to the praise of His glory. Don't you like that? (laughs) Ephesians is is a high doctrinal book. Uh, and it definitely features the glory of God like all other books do too. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening and thank You for this uh, just a beautiful day that You've given us. And uh, Of course, You give us the rain. You give us the sunshine. You give it uh, the exact perfect time that uh, You know is best. Uh, we thank You that You make the decisions on that. And uh, it's all about Your glory. And as we look at Your Word tonight and uh, look a little bit about what the means are to bringing us in to experiencing Your glory, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, may we be able to focus upon them and see the triune God, how He works and You work so um, perfectly and in perfect harmony and will one day bring everything back into harmony in this universe. You are glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in uh, verse 11, we, we talked about the inheritance and what that means for us. And we get everything that Christ has. 
that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It's almost uh, amazing to even think about. Almost uh, too astonishing. You know, we, we, we don't know what all that means, but uh, the blessings are incredible. And he said that uh, we were predestined. It was according to the very purpose of Him. It was His grand plan. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's for His good pleasure, His will. He's been saying that all along, hasn't He? And then we um, we see that in that verse uh, 11, we saw that it's His predestined plan. It's all in His power in the way that He works all things. And according to the counsel of His will, it's the preeminence. That's the whole whole thing. It's it's about His will and Him doing that. And, and all for the praise of His glory, as it says in verse 12. Then we, what we do there, we've, we've been looking at it God's viewpoint. We see the things like benefits that we get out of it, the blessings. And they're immense all through here, but it's been featuring... The triune God, and of course we're moving into 13 and 14, which is going to bring the Holy Spirit in. But we've seen God's viewpoint, and that's where you start. And then when you get into 13 and 14, still focusing on God and the Holy Spirit, He's showing what this salvation is and what it means. So there's a man's viewpoint here also, because what comes into play, as we see in verse 12 and verse 13, um, let's just read that. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. A lot of big phrases, a lot of big words there, aren't there? In a way, you get a little bit of man's viewpoint of this. Here's what man did. Man trusted. In verse 12, that we who first trusted. And there we'll we'll get into explaining a little bit what the we is. The we actually would be Paul, would be that first generation, the apostles, the, the Jewish Christians, the ones who had trusted in Christ. And then it's like he turns over to the Gentiles and then uh, at Ephesus. Uh, you also trusted, as he puts the two together. But when you have God's viewpoint, man's viewpoint is important only after you see where it is with God, that what he has done. Man still has to trust in God. There is that sense. There's the repentance and trust. There, there's a tension here when you speak of God's sovereignty. God being sovereign over all, and that being even in salvation. But there's a tension between His sovereignty and man's responsibility. Um, what J.I. Packer had, had the book about uh, evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Or you can think of prayer and the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, why should we pray? If God is sovereign, why should we witness? Well, we're told to. <laughs> but God uses us as, as a means to bring people to Christ. He uses the Word, uses the Holy Spirit, and He uses uh, us to, to declare that gospel. But the tension is, is that we're to believe that God predestined us, that He elected us, because it's there, it's in the Scripture, you can't miss it, and it's not for any other reason than God's good pleasure, 
We see that. We, we focus upon that. Man cannot reconcile in his mind how this really works out. He has a finite mind. His mind can only think so much. And when it comes to the point of God and His sovereignty and man yet responding, man can't put that together, so what does he do? Well, in, in our time period and within the last 150 years or so, as a whole, the church says, yeah, we believe. We have to believe, we have to repent, which is true, but knowing that it starts with God and God says we can't do that on our own, it'll have to be a regeneration by God, that's where it gets confusing, so they say man has to make a decision. And so therefore, God did his part, but now man has to do his part. And what they do is they get human reasoning in when there are obvious passages that says, God already did this before the foundation of the world. He chose who he wanted to to bring in, Ephesians and Romans and all those passages. But the finite man, uh, mind of man, we, we understand how it, it can go that way. And whenever God's revealed truth is put forth, and it's very clear, we have to believe that text that's there, or we have to, we have to push it aside either eliminate it, not talk about it, or twist it and make it say something else by using another passage that correlates with something that we are familiar with. Uh, man, on his part, is to have faith. We know that. And we know that faith comes from God because it is granted from Him. And we know, like in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, uh, everybody knows that. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's granted to us. Uh, we know that um, repentance is the same way. Man is to repent and to believe. That's a requirement. That has to be done. And that's what we see in, in the text. But also in the text, near the end of this sentence in Ephesians 1, after we have seen all about what God has done, the Father and the Son so far, and then the Holy Spirit regenerating, doing that great work in, in a person. Near the end of that sentence, then, we see not only God's plan before creation, but how it comes about. And He puts us in His plan, and He enables us now to respond to Him, to be able to believe in that great truth. The question is, is how can we believe in that great truth if we're really dead? How can we believe? We know that we're told that we cannot because of that nature. And so it's Him that puts the faith there that He requires, and it's like the connecting hose to us. That's, it's a channel, and now we are in touch with God, which we were not before. He gave that to us. He supplies the faith. He supplies the repentance, which means to turn from sin and turn to God. And He's the one that uh, en enables us, which we were not able to do. So man's viewpoint is found here in verse 12, that we... Paul, apostles, the other ones that were in that generation who first trusted in Christ, we, we, we were the ones that did that. It's for the praise of His glory. Then it's like He turns 
here now to the uh, Ephesians, and for the most part, they're Gentile people. And he says, in whom you also trusted. Here's we, and here's the you. I guess we'd be included in that you, wouldn't we? That That's us. We also trusted. And here, here are the means that uh, is being involved with. We trusted after heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you have the word of truth that's proclaimed to you, and then you believe it. And uh, so this is the means that God that God uses. And uh, the means, uh, first of all, we know that without the word of God, one will be separated from God in some way or manner, whether it's a, a direct reading from a scripture, whether it's somebody delivering that to you, whether it's you, you're thinking eventually that word, though, is going to make the impact. And we know we have different, each one of us have different stories of how we came to the Lord, but somehow, some way, the word of God was involved in converting your soul. Uh, it may not seem like it at first, but that's how he relates to us. That's how we relate to him. And so he uses that. The people who have this inheritance, God guarantees the people who believe the gospel, who are the ones that are going to believe? The one he grants the faith. And he says, you have believed. You trusted in that word of truth. So he brings it forth to them and they live for the praise of his glory then. And uh, it's like, here it is. The gospel, the word of truth, is brought to you. You believe in it. There's the calling that Romans 8 talks about. He, uh, he predestined, he foreordained, and then he calls. And he might be calling on you for maybe some length of time. It might be a matter of years. But that word is around and then eventually at at the time that he has already put forth that you'd be born again you are you're called and that's where the holy spirit comes in and does the uh, regeneration so what's what's the first means that's brought forth word of god right now god is committed to his own honor god is committed to that one of the greatest ways to honor pe- uh, people is to trust them. Here he says, in whom you, in verse 13, also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, now, translations might read differently there, might be turned around and such, but there's an idea, believing and trusting is basically the same thing. That You might even have the word hope in there somewhere. Do you see that? And hope and belief in this context would be very, very similar. Very similar words. They're the, it's the same idea. That's, that's a very grounded hope. But um, when one trusts and has great hope in one, and it's absolute trust in them, they are showing that they honor God, or they honor whatever it is they're, they're trusting. God is committed to His own honor. And... Um, we ha- we are committed to honoring Him. So you cannot be a Christian without this Word of God that comes. God does His work through that through that Word. Go to Acts. 
And um, we know that early on, preaching the gospel had been done. You see it throughout the early chapters. And here's what the apostles were doing and the ones who were converted. This was just before the, the gospel was taken to Samaria. Jerusalem first, Judea, then Samaria. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. The word for preaching there is not uh, caruso, which means to proclaim. It means to, it's euangelizo, which is evangelize. They were evangelizing the Word. They were giving the good news. The good news of the Word. And back in Ephesians 1.13, the word gospel, that's euangelion, uh, or good news, or gospel, good news. They're preaching the Word, the, uh, the good news. You notice in, in Acts 8.4, those who were scattered, persecution started happening. This was um, during the time that Saul was wreaking havoc all across uh, Israel there and uh, on beyond. He entered every house, dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. And the very next verse, God just scattered people then because of that. And they were able now to take the gospel out where they weren't doing it before. Something that looks so negative and that they're getting hard persecution, he takes and gets the word out. And then in verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Preached the Messiah. Preached uh, Christ crucified, as Paul would say so much. Uh, but this was before before Paul. It was the Saul days. Uh, go to 2 Timothy 4, too. That's what they have to hear. They have to hear the Word. Paul writes, Timothy says, preach psychology. Be ready in season. <laughs> New translation. Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season. Why? What does it do? Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The Word. The Word is to be uh, evangelized. The Word is continued to, uh, as you disciple, to be to be preached. Go to First Thessalonians chapter two. Just different places where it talks about the preaching of the word. What did Paul do when he came into Thessalonica? He was thanking God because of what happened there. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so they heard it. They received it. They heard it. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It's not enough just to hear it and just to say, yes, uh, hey, I believe that it's, it's real. But it goes much further than just that. And just to finish this off, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Jesus Christ. He says you became imitators. They, they, they did it. They not only received that word, but then they acted upon it. And so it's not just uh, uh, the word that 
something as they hear and they're interested in it, it's really exciting, but uh, it doesn't go any further, it takes effect in their lives when effectively barred. Um, that, that that you just said about um, you know accept, hearing it and accepting it, and earlier you mentioned something stuff with me about you know the spirit has to work in you. And I remember, you know, back when I when I was Catholic and when I was confirmed, and I mean, didn't you know that at twelve every the Holy Spirit works on everybody? You know, that's <laughs> that's when you get confirmed and you get the, you receive the Holy Spirit. And it's like, you know, all I got was a piece of paper. I didn't get the Holy Spirit. It's like they're trying to dictate to God and to the Spirit. And you know, it wasn't until what thirty something years later that. You know, it was my time. It wasn't when I was 12. What did you think when you were 12, when they told you that? Just that. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a piece of paper that says I'm confirmed. Am I supposed to feel something? You know, and I never did. And I, I firmly believe that those who did were faking it. Did they proclaim the word? What do you mean? Like, like when we're looking here, like in Acts and... Uh, the Thessalonians and all the passages where to give the gospel, they preached the word. Did they ever preach the word to you how you truly get saved? You, you never got that message? No. no? You, you know, it's, it's the, the dogma involved in that particular faith. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to form a Catholic or anything. Or former, okay. <laughs> but do you feel, yeah, it was just something that the church
what was missing, the, the, it seems like the Word of God was not proclaimed. Like, it's, it's, if you look at the, the Scripture, starting in, well, you look through the Gospels, you look through the whole Bible, but uh, how did the church, you know, what, what did they do? Well, they, they took the same message wherever they went. Paul constantly stays with that same theme. Uh, of giving that out, but you ne- you never got that, did you? You're Catholic. You don't you don't need a Bible if you're Catholic. You know that? They used to not want you to have one. Well, yeah, there's mm-hmm. some some priests now in, in some parishes around here that say you don't need the Bible. All you need is this the Saint Joseph's Missal, and that has everything in it you need. So either this thing's wrong, mm-hmm. or they're wrong. Yeah, this one girl I worked with who goes to a Catholic church not in Jeff City, but around the area. She said that her priest told them to just throw the Bible away. They don't need it. Mm-hmm. And well, I don't ever uh, remember having opened the Bible all the way through catechism, which is what they called it back then, and all the way through until I quit going to high school. You had your Baltimore catechism, the books that you do, never the Bible. That's interesting. We look at the historical aspect and the biblical aspect. Go to Second Thessalonians. Here's another. I mean, you go one after another, but Second Thessalonians two thirteen. Again, Paul's saying we're bound to give thanks to God always for you. It starts off with God, doesn't it? Praising God, giving Him thanks for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification. That's the means by the Spirit, and what belief. In the truth. Well, we have looked other places and it would say the word or it would say the gospel. Well, that's what the truth. Read a few more words. To which he called you by our gospel. It depends on what you believe the truth is. And if you're Catholic, you believe all that other stuff. Yeah. What comes down to which one's the authority? Which one's the authority? He called you by the gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what do you, what do you have here? You have uh, the means again that God uses. But it's not just enough. And here's where it gets really, really tricky because that's what the Catholic Church would say. It's not just enough. Yeah, we believe in the Bible, but there's more. Well, I'm saying there's more too, but what is that more? You can hear the Word of God, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then that Word of God is going to be meaningless. The Word alone is not enough. We know, we, we believe that in Scripture alone, right? We don't need tradition. We don't need uh, Baltimore Catechism, the Word of God there. But we have to be... Uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He has to uh, regenerate us. We're in Thessalonians. Go to chapter 1 of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1, 5. For our, now look, you can look at any, any book in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. And here is the word gospel. For our gospel, that good news, did not come to you in word only, And here's where we say it's not just the Word that stands alone. The Word has to be with the Spirit of God. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit, 
and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. We brought you the gospel. It's God's gospel, but um, he says it wasn't the Word of God alone that changed. It has to be the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the working of God in, in one, the regeneration. So I would like a definition of sola scriptura. Yeah, sola scriptura, <laughs> because here we are, it sounds like we're going against the sola scriptura, which is one of the claims of, uh, that's the Reformation cry, right? Which we believe. And, and I was kind of like uh, saying that in the sense that you you can't add the Bible with other uh, materials, with tradition or with your catechisms, even confessions and all of those, even though they can be built upon the Word of God. The Word of God is our absolute authority. But the Word of God has to come with the power of the Holy Spirit. If one heard the Word, but the Holy Spirit is not working in that person's life, what's going to happen? It's going to fall on deaf ears. But the Word of, um, the word of God, or sola scriptura, means there are no other uh, written materials, no other tradition uh, of men that has the authority of the Word of God. So the Catholic Church Does that work? Doesn't believe in that then, right? What's that? So the no, because that, that was a Reformation cry. Okay. The Catholic, uh, um, um, you have Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. and you also have the magisterium as the authority. It's it's uh, triune, <laughs> and uh, the Reformation said no scripture alone. We don't need the magisterium, and we don't need tradition. This is where the authority is at. And that was the big cry. Aren't there some of the religions that follow the Reformation? I mean, the people that broke away from the Catholic Church? Well, I guess they said the Protestants, but there's some Protestants, like Methodists or Lutherans, who have other things that they use in addition I, I I would still like to think that they would still say, yeah, Scripture alone. Now, there are a lot of those now that are liberal who would not necessarily hold the Word of God in high esteem. But even uh, even our brothers who are in, uh, whether it be Wesleyan tradition, some kind of Arminian view. Huh? But they recognize their salvation. What happens to the Catholic Church? They do not recognize that there's any salvation for you at all. Well, it's always it's Christ plus something. It's the Word of God plus something. There, there, there was Christ alone. Grace alone. It'd be, yeah, it's God's grace that's infused into you plus all the good works that you do. Um, you can go, it's, so therefore, that's why you have the alones, the solas in, in the Reformation because they're saying we don't need anything else as far as that is concerned. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, right? I don't know if you... I have read something that there is a move afoot for there to be greater unity between Roman Catholic and Protestantism and Eastern Orthodox. 
Absolutely. Back in the 90s, we had what? ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. There's been another one that they've signed as of recently, in really in the means of uh, maybe being stronger against some of the things of the government, whether it be abortion or that kind of thing. But uh, it was dealing with doctrine as a compromise. And the Episcopal Church, or the... Uh, what's what's the church in, in England? Uh, Anglican Church. They definitely have made uh, a wave towards that, too, which they were very close anyway. But N.T. Wright, how many have heard of N.T. Wright? Um a theologian who is very has been very well respected for many many years. He has has had great works, one on resurrection, I think, and many other things that were very sound, very scholarly individual, uh, a man of great intellect, and uh, a man of God. Um, but he um, has probably is the leader now uh, that is against your justification by faith alone. He's written several works uh, about that, and um, being Anglican, I guess, he comes from that from that angle, uh, with that kind of thought, they you are able to compromise with the Catholic Church. And I believe Romanism is being embraced by many Protestants today. They don't see the difference anymore. They don't recognize Scripture alone. Grace alone. What's that? Well, the the slide into liberalism. Uh, it, it always starts with uh, how you view the Word of God, and once it becomes loose, it's no longer uh, the inspired Word of God. Then the church is going to fall further and further, whatever church that is, whatever denomination that is. All denominations, for the most part, many of them have broken and split. Some stayed with the truth. Others went the other way. And uh, I think right now, I think, Janice, what you're saying is right. I think many of them would like to get right back together with the Roman and church. Catholic, influential Catholic hierarchy that welcome this and practically plead with their Christian brothers in Protestantism that they, they're ready to embrace them with open arms, one said. But I thought the only thing is there has to be compromise. And it won't be on the part of the Roman Catholic Church. It'll be on the part of... Yeah. yeah. Exactly. For the most part, you're talking about the leadership anyway. People sitting in those views don't have any idea what you're talking about anyway. I just I read just today that Tony Blair, you know, the his buddy with Bill Clinton, um, and there's yeah, the former guy. Uh, so he's going after Rick Warren here in this country to work with this economic thing. Well, he puts himself out there. He's, you know, he's kind of your preacher for hire. Oh, what's what 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 is the problem? What what's their view of the Word of God? What's their view of the of the Spirit of God? Um, how about First Corinthians twelve three? 
Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Of course, so anybody could say, well, Jesus is Lord. But we're talking about the one who is driven by the Holy Spirit to recognize that Jesus Christ really is your Lord. It's by the Holy Spirit that you're able to do that. Peter made a great confession of faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, you were not able to say that from a human standpoint. This came from God that you're able to say that. You know, it's a work of God. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers that word to make an, a, an effect in one's life. Uh, how about Acts 16:14? You have a lady that is sitting by the, the riverside uh, in Philippi. She's with some people. They're God worshipers. Yeah, Lydia. And Paul happens to be there. He sees them. And it says, A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Now, she's not a Christian yet, but the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And that's what didn't happen to me when I was 12. <laughs> you had some things spoken, but <laughs> it, was, it wasn't necessarily the truth of the Word of God. There might have been some things involved in there. I was told I received the Holy You know what's interesting? I think about how sovereign God is, and I look back at that now, and I say, even in that, you know what? God is even in work at that, because now you can see so much of the difference between black and white, but He was even working on you then. But that wasn't your time to be saved, but it's interesting how God can even, you know, it wasn't a mistake as you, as you really look back, but at the same time we can say, wow, what a, what a waste, I guess in one sense. How many people have said that? All my years that I had. I mean, I didn't live for the Lord. I, I lived for myself, and that is a waste. But then you look at from God's viewpoint and what He's doing, He's getting you ready. There's going to be a time that He's going to call you. But here it is. He, he had her ripe. And it was just at that time that Paul comes along and then gives the truth of the gospel and God... Because Paul can't open the heart, though, can he? It has to be the Holy Spirit. We can pray, we can read the Word and preach it to people as much as we want, but it'll never take an effect until God does it, until He works it. We can have a um, an altar call for 20 minutes. <laughs> And offer all sorts of things for people if they would come down and walk the aisle. But until Lord, the Lord opens the heart, uh, that's where it's going to, to be at. And then we see, we see that uh, because of that, then she was baptized. We see that uh, she was persuaded truly. She was really a, a Christian. And uh, that's, that's the effect that uh, the Holy Spirit does. And I, I think of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. It's uh, the Holy Spirit, again, that, that makes that work. So, we have the Word of Truth, which is the means that God uses. We have the Holy Spirit, which is the means 
that God uses. So, uh, and of course, he's going to bring forth what the gospel means with the person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, taking away the sin. And uh, so the gospel offers uh, that you can be forgiven. And man then responds, as we go back to our text, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed. Faith is man's response to God's elective purpose. Um, what is it in uh, Acts? I, I like it so much. I think it, it's in Acts 13. 1348 is what it is, I believe. There you have people sitting around at Antioch, and you have a preaching of the Word of God. It says in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you first. And he's talking about the Jews that were there. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And he, then he quotes out of an Old Testament, For the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified what? The word of the Lord. Sola Scriptura. <laughs> right? They, did, they weren't given any tradition here. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, what did they do? They believed. Isn't that beautiful? You can't miss it. The ones who had been appointed, they heard that word of God, they believed them because of it. God persuaded them. Faith, uh, though, is, is man's response. Man does respond. That's how God made it possible for the elect to come to Christ by that instrument. What did they do? They heard it. In, in Romans 10.17, it says what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God or a word about the Christ, the Messiah. Same thing. They heard and then they believed. You know, I've often heard from an Arminian side, you think of irresistible grace. And they'll say, well, you know, God can't force His will on anybody. And you know, I agree with them. God does not force His will. He persuades the will. Matter of fact, He makes the Word attractive to us. He doesn't force our will, but what He does, He gives the ability now to understand, whereas before we didn't. Now, it is irresistible. It's, it's the grace of God that He has given through the Word of God that we now are attracted to what God has given us. We couldn't understand it before. Matter of fact, it turned us off. I can't understand it. I don't know what it means. And what He does by giving that Word and whenever, whenever the law is preached and, and uh, forgiveness and grace and sin, then what happens is that he leads us to repentance. There has to be repentance at salvation, doesn't there? There has to be faith. And He's the one that leads us to that. And He does it in a way that He makes it so irresistible. How can you turn it down? Whenever He regenerates, now we can understand we couldn't before. 
We not only hear it, but we believe it. What does it say in Romans 10? You believe in the heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is that? How does that go there, Romans 10? For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. There's your whosoever. How many have heard that? Yeah, but the whosoever's. Yeah, that's true. What is it? Um, on As you enter the portals of heaven, it's been said by one of the reformers. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about yeah. here? Um, and I, I might get this wrong, but I, I kind of forget how it goes here. But uh, from as you as the believer walks in, he's seeing that whosoever comes in, and on the other side, coming from God's angle, uh, is that's the elect, the ones who are predestined. I might be using the wrong words. Have you guys heard that one before? But what it is, there, there's two sides of this. Of course, God is the one that makes it all happen, but yet the ones who are elected by Him are drawn by Him. And they go to Him because of this great work in Him. That's how they're able to uh, to trust, to believe. We place our hope. We place our confidence. We our trust in every respect uh, to, to Christ. That's why in that verse 13, in Him, Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, can you imagine the work of God that was going on in you when that happened? The gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed. Aha! Now we've seen the means. Now you get into the uh, the earnest of the inheritance. God's seal. The seal of God. If you're a Christian, you have the seal. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee. So you have... A sealing, S-E-A-L, and you have a guarantee. And what does sealed mean? Probably different ideas, but just going back to the Greek word, there are a lot of different senses of what it is, and they're all related. Uh, They kind of tie up into one. For one thing, it's an official mark of um, uh, somebody, an identification, let's say, that is placed on an official document, an official letter. There's a sealing that's put on there. The seal was made from, uh, let's say, hot wax. And then it's placed on this document, and then a signet ring is pressed down upon it. And now that it's sealed, it, it, it means there's an identification that this is now under the authority of the person to whom that ring belonged. You can think of kings doing that, for instance. So there, there are two great words here in uh, verse 13 and 14. The sealed and guarantee, uh, they kind of go together. But uh, let's see if we can unseal this sealed here a little bit and look inside, inside there. What does it mean that believers have been sealed? Okay, we, we heard the word of truth, then we believed, and then it's like there, God seals us here by the Holy Spirit. Um, go to Matthew 27. There's a word here dealing with uh, a seal or this identification from the Romans, for instance. And the uh, burial of Christ, the grave.
Pilate said to him, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. Verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. They put the Roman seal on there. If anybody breaks that, you're a dead one. They'll they'll, uh, crucify you. So they they put that seal on there that whole idea of that seal is so that um, it wouldn't be broken. And uh, you put guards around it. Uh, if you go to Revelation 20, verse 3, God puts a seal on Satan. It casts him into the bottomless pit shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until a thousand years are finished. And after these things, he must be released for a little while. There is putting him in a pit, putting the seal there that uh, people at the time would definitely understand. And of course, I think we have seal uh, here, but in one sense, it's a security seal. Another one is found in Romans 4.11, you see another sense where God uh, uses this word in His Word to bring forth a little bit more of the definition of this. And He received the sign of circumcision. This is speaking about Abram. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had made while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father, those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. He received the sign. This is to make it authentic. This is to make it real. It's called the sign and the seal of the the righteousness he had by faith. Uh, same same word, same sense in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verse 2. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He's having to defend himself quite a bit. He says, If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the one that makes it authentic. I was a true apostle, and you are the the proof of that, or the ones who uh, make it authentic. Paul says that his converts are the seal of the ministry that he had, as being a, a servant of God, as being that apostle, a sign of authenticity. So you have security in the seal. You have authenticity. Uh, let's go to a, a third one. Uh, Revelation 7, verse 3. These are all kind of related. We get different senses of it. Revelation 7, 3. He uses this word again, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. There's a seal... And it's showing an ownership, but it's also showing a protection that protect uh, them from uh, any kind of wrath or any kind of evil forces. 
the seal uh, in the sense you're talking about the mark of God or showing that uh, He owns you. So what does Paul mean in Ephesians 1.13 when he says that believers are sealed? Well, they're put in, in a security situation uh, showing that this is authentic. They're showing that uh, they are owned by God. The seal has been put on them. If the Spirit seals out any kind of uh, enemy, it seals in the faith. I mean, this is an assurance passage when you really think about it. Uh, when you're talking about something that, that God has done um, in making this sealing, there's, there's definitely security in uh, putting His stamp on it. If the Spirit seals us as a sign of authenticity, then that sign is that the Spirit's work has done God's work. Um, it's a trademark that He has. Our being eternally sons of God forever. It's, it's authentic. He's the sign of, of reality of our lives. Would you say He's also owning us or protecting us too? protects us from from evil. So, John Piper says, however you come at this passage, what is being stated here is that there is definitely meant behind it. There is safety. There is security. There is the love of God. The power of God involved. You have a preserving seal here to lock in your faith. Um, God has authenticated it. He's validated you as a son. He is protecting you from destructive forces. The point is is that God wants us to know that we're secure and safe in His love and power. And I think this is where Martin Lloyd-Jones would take a little bit different shift in a gear here, but um, he borrows from some pretty good people, one of them being Charles Hodge, uh, wrote a great book, Systematic Theology, in the late 1800s from Princeton Semin uh, Seminary. Uh, he also uh, borrowed from John Owen and some other Puritans. And they took this in a, in a sense that it's a... And I would have to spend more time understanding. I've listened to him on this, but I think to sum it up, uh, what it comes down to, there's some kind of a special fulfillment in what the Holy Spirit has done, where he it's just like there is a sense of experiencing Christ in a way that you never had before, where he he finally comes to you in a sense that you know you're totally protected, you're in a in a situation that God is uh, um, how can he say it? He, he's he's not only uh, secure for you, he's authentic, his ownership. But now you're having a relationship that's so close and so tight to him that you know without a doubt that he is uh, your father. Yeah, there's a, a, an experience behind this. And some have been able to take this, and I guess you use terms on it, sometimes it can be very misleading. But some have called it like a second blessing. Of course, then I've heard others say, well, there's a third blessing, a fourth blessing, a fifth blessing, and a hundredth blessing too. So, you know, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it. I, I think I kind of get what he has, but I'm treating him very unfairly here because I don't have a lot of his quotes. I wasn't quite prepared to really bring that forth. But it's really knowing and experiencing that. Have you ever read uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones on that? What 
can you define it better than I, I just can. did? I can. I've, it's difficult. I, it was difficult for me to understand exactly what he was getting at. I remember it because I had trouble with it. But this is not a, something that follows later sometimes. This is when you receive your salvation. What I read, First Thessalonians, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. I agree with you on that. I really do. Martin Lloyd-Jones would not. And this is where I'm st- I'm still having, I don't know if you can say difficulty. I kind of get what he says, but then in another sense, I believe the sealing happens at the time that um, the Spirit comes into you. Yeah, you don't have to know it. You don't have to yeah, understand it. Yeah, the comprehension it. of it probably. Yeah. I would yeah. <laughs> the comprehension of it doesn't happen. So when did he say the sealing came before that? He would say the sealing would happen sometime after that, but he wouldn't give you any time period. It could be it could be shortly after that, within a short amount of time, up to assurance of salvation. Uh, a deep, deep experience of assurance of salvation. I'm sure every one of you have had some kind of experience, maybe years later down the road, where you knew you'd been a Christian before. But somewhere along the line, the Lord led you into doing something that you haven't... Maybe it's some kind of ministry. Maybe it's something where you felt closer to the Lord than you ever had before. You had uh, this experience, this feeling. And I think that is what some of the Puritans and Lloyd-Jones were talking about. I think. I don't want to misunderstand, but I do know that what Eldon just said, I still believe that. And uh, if they're saying it's sometime later, um, then I struggle with that. You know when you go through trials and you have a, uh, a deeper appreciation for the things of God? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what that, I mean, to me, I could see that, that's where I could see that, that would be affected. Is it because of the deeper trials that you go on this earth with as being a believer, you do have a better appreciation for who God is. The depth of him becomes yeah. real to you. Well, it, I mean, just your growth, just reading scripture, and just you know, just reading some of the some of the founding fathers, and just growing, just your growth in Christ. It, it's not that that's when you get the seal. I agree with Elvin that you're sealed in your salvation, and then you grow. And then you begin to realize you were sealed at yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And then that, then that deep, that deep relationship. I mean, it's just like any, any kind of a friendship we have. You know, we may, we may meet someone and enjoy being with them, and and it isn't maybe for years before we realize, wow, that's my best friend. You know, and I think our relationship with the Lord is, is much like that. Sure. And I know some people that are, I think, authentically saved. They're believers. And they'd fight you for the right to not be sealed. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I've got the right to choose to follow him or not choose it. If my decision, I can go to hell if I want to, is what they're saying, but... Of course, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do those actions. But they, they, they. What do you think it comes down to when they say that? I know what you're saying because I've ran into those. They don't want to give up their ability to be in charge. And don't you think I, that's just a lack of understanding? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll get you some more information. I, like I say, I am not, I have, I was looking at his commentary. He has two cha- about three chapters, two or three chapters that he deals with that. And he gives the scripture, uh, and I, they wouldn't say that a Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, no way would you ever hear those guys saying that. Uh, otherwise, you're not a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. You have to be. Romans says that clearly. But um, it, it, it's it's difficult. <laughs> anyway. Why don't we uh, Why don't we stop there? We we talked about the uh, the seal there, right? And we'll get into a little bit more of that and the uh, the guarantee or the earnest that um, that guarantee that we know that uh, that we have. If if there's oh yeah well if there's a seal to be broken it would only be because God would allow it right yeah God did it right he can seal it and then he can unseal it but it was yeah. sealed for a thousand years yeah. it, that was the purpose yeah. so, so if he said you were only sealed for a thousand years then in a thousand years yours would be broke too but the only problem it goes back and shows God has all the power again <laughs> those people don't always like that. <laughs> we don't want to give up control. That's the bottom line, I think, the reason there's so much opposition to these things, is I want to be in charge. Well, what we just talked about last night, which is, is or, what did I say last night? That's <laughs> a quick 24 hours. What we just said tonight, really to us, just flows right along. And it's, well, of course, Dennis, we already know this. But to a lot of people, what we just read, I mean, right out of Ephesians, I think would be very offensive because it takes the control away. And But we did put forth, okay, here's the God viewpoint and here's man's viewpoint. There is faith and there is repentance. He does respond, but still we see where that comes from. And that's where our bridge happens. We know that even that comes from Him. So therefore, we have to give Him all the glory, not Almost all of it, and us a little bit. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's all about the will. The first chapter of Thessalonians is the most controversial chapter in the whole Bible. When you talk to some Christians or some people, maybe even not Christians, but some people, I think. And you said Thessalonians or uh, Ephesians. Ephesians. Because we've been in Thessalonians most of the night. <laughs> You're doing what I did. I talked about last night while we were just right here. <laughs> yeah, right. It is. So it's got three main points in it that I see. We were 
we were ordained by God. We were chosen by Him. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And two out of three of them, people really aren't going to argue with. Yeah. I'm just so glad He's doing it all. Gives us great comfort, doesn't it? Freedom in Christ. Rather than our free will. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let's close with prayer.